Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. So welcome to the podcast. This is episode 272. I'm glad to be with you. My name is Douglas Wilson, and I am glad you're here. So uh, today, I want to talk about social contract, and I want to talk about the social contract. There are three thinkers that are usually associated with uh, the social contract theory. They are Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke. Now, in this world of social contract theory, I would argue that John Locke had the most Christian capital in his system. John Locke was himself a professing Christian, wrote a commentary on Ephesians and so on. But he was not the same kind of Christian that his uh, his father actually had been part of the Puritan Parliament in the 1600s. So he was John Locke was the son of a Puritan, and but he largely took. Protestant resistance theology, and then secularized it. Part of the secularization has to do with this uh, idea of social contract. John Locke was sort of the right wing of social contract theory, where um, C.S. Lewis calls uh, Rousseau the father of the totalitarians, and Thomas Hobbes famously wrote Leviathan. So, if you wanted, if you if you're sort of braced for an overweening totalitarian state, you're probably going to get more of a straight line from Hobbes and Rousseau to that than you would from John Locke. John Locke was more interested in a social contract theory that resulted in a a social organization that would protect the rights of the individual. But all of them begin with a social contract. Now, the problem with this social contract is that it is something that never happened. It's an imaginary contract, an imaginary covenant, an imaginary contract that is postulated as sort of an abstraction to fill a void in the argument. What is it that ties us all together? Why, why do I have to pay any attention to what the guys in Washington say, or if I'm a Canadian, what the guys in Ottawa say? What, why do I have? What, what is it that binds one man to another? And people can just sort of appeal, do a little hand-waving over the, well, there's a social compact. And I'd say, well, when did we vote on it? When did we decide on it? When did we ratify it? When did we do this thing? Social contract theory has the big disadvantage of having never happened. (laughs) There was no parliament that convened in the state of nature. It wasn't like human beings were standing around in a state of nature and then we elected representatives who went to an actual parliament and hammered out a, an agreement or a, a contract that they voted on and it passed, and so we're all obligated to it. That contract never happened. Now, it seems to me that that's a very great deficiency. That's a real, that's a real problem. But a bigger problem with it is that it displaces a covenant that really did happen. It displaces a covenant that really did occur, and that covenant was in the Garden of Eden. There is no such thing as prehistoric man. Uh, We have a written history that goes back to day one. 
from the beginning of the human race, we have had written records. It, there's, it, there are bookstores in the town where you live where you can go and buy the record of the human record that goes back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And when God was done creating the heavens at the end of the creation week, he created man and then woman. So, what this means, and this is not to put too fine a point on it, Christians have a historical social covenant, a historical social contract. Now, we in our father Adam, we represented by our father Adam, broke that contract and fell into sin. Now, all of this is historical. Uh, Genesis 1 is historical, Genesis 2 is historical, and Genesis 3, recording the fall, is historical. That means that we can appeal, uh, oh, and someone say, well, I, just like you never signed that uh, Lockean social contract, I never signed Adam's covenant. Well, the answer there is, yes, you did. Sin entered the world through one man, and death came to all men because all sinned. Anyone who's ever sinned has ratified that covenant. So Adam, our father, represented us in the garden, and we all voted on it every time we sin. We vote, we vote on it again and again every time we sin. And that means there's only one person, there's only one human being who ever lived who isn't represented by the first Adam, and that was the Lord Jesus, the second Adam. So when people appeal to the social contract, what they're doing is they're appealing to an invisible covenant, an imaginary covenant that binds us to the state and has provides no effective check or balance on the growth of that state because we all apparently signed our rights away you know in this invisible realm back which back in the misty ages which never happened in other words libertarianism which rests upon social contract theory and progressive leftism which rests upon social contract theory. Both have to be rejected for the same reason. Uh, they, they both rest upon bogus premises. Always will be God. As we continue with uh, Plodcast 272, in our study of homartiology, we come to the New Testament's treatment of lust. Last week, we looked at the verb for lust or to covet. This week, we begin a three-part series on lust, the noun. And the word is Epithumia, epithumia, lust, concupiscence, desire, or lust after. So, like the verb, it doesn't need to be a sinful desire, although, given the nature of the world, it usually is. Given the way the world is, if someone has a strong desire, the chances are good that it is uh, <laughs> not in a good place, right? So, here are some good examples. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke twenty two fifteen. That's the Lord Jesus expressing his intense desire to eat the eat the supper, the Passover with his disciples. And then Paul says in Philippians one twenty three, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire. There it is, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So Paul has an intense desire to die and to go be with the Lord, to live as Christ to die is more Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain, and he has an intense desire for that gain, having a desire to depart. So, this word, epithemia, is not necessarily a bad desire, right? Nevertheless, 
It is bad most of the time, at least in the pages of Scripture. So in Mark 4.19, And the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts, there it is, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. We also learn that the devil, the father of lies, is a wanting creature. John 8.44 says this, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. So notice, the lusts of your father. The devil has lusts. The devil lusts. The devil wants. The devil desires. The lusts of your father ye, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. The, the pagan Roman world was dominated by lust. Romans one twenty four. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And then here are a cluster of exhortations from Paul on the subject for Christians. I may even throw in a few comments of my own. This is a daisy chain of Bible verses here. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Romans 6.12 What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Romans 7.7 7. Notice the, the connection of coveting and lusting. Uh, epithemia for lust and uh, our word for uh, uh, last week for the, on the verb for covet. And then, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh, to fulfill the lusts thereof. Romans thirteen fourteen. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians five sixteen. And they, which are Christ's, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Galatians five twenty four. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's Ephesians 2.3. That ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. That's Ephesians 4.22. And then later in his life, judging from the pastorals, it does not appear that Paul's mind has changed uh, at all. Please note that Paul has an awful lot to say about lust. And remember, uh, in, in our day, when a lot, when a lot of uh, soft evangelical leaders are telling us that the New Testament whispers on the subject of lust, it's uh, simply not true. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and heart hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. 1 Timothy 6.9 Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2.22. For of this sort are they which creep into houses, and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts. 2 Timothy 3.6. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. 2 Timothy 4.3. Teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2.12. And then last, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Titus 3.3. So there you go. Lust. Paul is against it. God don't never change. He's God.
So my book review for this uh, time around is a book called Jesus, the Incarnation of the Word. Jesus, the Incarnation of the Word. This book is um, by a, a man named David Mitchell. This is, uh, I just read two books by this guy back to back and was greatly edified and blessed by both of them. The first book, um, Messiah Ben Joseph, I may have mentioned here before, Messiah Ben Joseph. I'll just touch on it briefly. It sets the stage for this next one. Messiah Ben Joseph points out that there is a messianic line of prophecies in the Old Testament that Christians have not emphasized, but which was a uh, very definite stream of discussion and thought in the rabbinic literature prior to Christ and after. In Jacob's blessing of his sons in uh, Genesis and in the Song of Moses uh, in Deuteronomy, both Jacob and Moses, in in the blessing that they pronounce on Joseph, are just uh, wax eloquent. They Basically, they promised Joseph the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, Joseph is promised uh, world dominion. Now, here's the issue. Joseph was given uh, the privilege because of his righteousness and godly um, example. He was given two tribes. All all, All his brothers have one tribe. Joseph is given two, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, Joshua uh, is a uh, is of the tribe of Ephraim. The the man who led Israel into Canaan and conquered it was an Ephraimite, and his name Joshua is the same name as the New Testament Jesus. In fact, some of you, if you have the um, uh, if you have the King James version of of the Bible in Hebrews, there's a a section in uh, Hebrews three or four where it calls the Old Testament Joshua, it calls him Jesus. So, it's the same name, basically. Uh, Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. Now, David Mitchell, in his book, Messiah Ben Joseph, traces all the discussion and debate over this uh, elusive character, uh, Messiah Ben Joseph. And, of course, as a Christian, Mitchell and we would see all of these uh, streams converging, but the challenge is how we we have Matthew's genealogy of the Lord Jesus, and we have Luke's genealogy of the Lord Jesus, and these genealogies have variations uh, in them, and the standard explanation of them is that well, one of them is Joseph's, that would be Jesus' legal genealogy, and the other one's Mary's. Uh, and that would be his um, sort of bloodline uh, genealogy. And uh, Mitchell disagrees with this, and his learning, shall we say, uh, his learning of ancient sources, and his he is steeped in the rabbinic literature. He really knows his onions. And his argument, and it's quite striking, is that both Matthew and Luke are giving us Joseph's genealogy. and. Uh, and I'm, I won't go into all of it here. And he explains the variations uh, between the two, why, uh, why there are certain names missing from one of the three names in a row, missing from one. And it has to do with curses pronounced on them by uh, Jeremiah and I think Ezekiel. 
So, uh, David Mitchell, if if you want if you want to do a deep dive into what was known about Jesus' family, what 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 did the early Christians know about the the lineage of Mary? What did they know about the lineage of Joseph? What was the importance of that lineage, and how was it possible for Jesus to be descended physically from Ephraim and from Judah and from Levi. Okay. So you <laughs> say, ah, okay. I think well, I think it's interesting. I don't think you I don't think you should laugh. So um here's here's the thing. Elizabeth, Zechariah and Elizabeth are both Levites, and Mary is related to her. After she has her visit from Gabriel, she goes to uh, visit Elizabeth, her relative. And Elizabeth is a Zadokite. She's descended from Zadok. And, and Mary is related to her. Mary is descended from Levi. Joseph is descended from David. And Mitchell goes into all of that, and he sorts it all out, and he ties it off with a bow. So, Jesus, the incarnation of the Word, it really, if you like this kind of stuff, you're, you're going to find it a page-turner. Mm-hmm.